name is Anjali. Um, I'm a children's author. Um, I'm a pause for thought when uh, they can fit me in. And um, I'm also someone, of, of course, you can see, a woman of visible faith. To start my story, and the reason why I'm here, really, is because the boxes that religion and media um, kind of forge in our heads they seem to clash more often than bring, um, you know, any kind of joyous news. We seem to have two boxes. Um, and I had an uncle when I was growing up that used to say that anything to do with God is God's PR. It's either bad PR or good PR. Um, and I never really understood what he meant until, you know, I was in my 20s and I went to study um, women's rights at university um, and began to understand that actually those two boxes and the boxes that we might not put ourselves in but other people want to put us in um, can be something of a struggle, especially when religion and media don't seem to be um, a box that merges, um, you know, lovingly. Um, now, when it comes to boxes and putting people into boxes and also breaking the boxes, what tends to happen, I find, as a person of faith and surrounded by people of lots of beautiful um, other faiths, is that the boxes we get put into are not the boxes we perceive ourselves as being. And often, especially when you're so called minority um, religion, it can often be boxed in something that's quite fearful, fearful-led, fearfully spoken about, and often really not humanised. Um, and when it comes to trying to break that box, um, it tends to be a kind of a pathway. The, re the religion and the faiths guide us into how we can break those boxes for ourselves and also break those boxes for other people. Now, I'm speaking a lot about boxes um, because that's the word that keeps coming out of my mouth right now. But um, I, I think when it comes to any kind of religious faith, um, it's very, very easy to be swallowed up by the diction that surrounds the perception of that faith. And the media, the world of media, I mean, it's so, so prevalent in all of our lives now. When I was a child, we didn't have social media, and many of you we didn't have social media when we were growing up. Um, and our children and now our teens, and of course, the adult world are so ingrained into getting news, into getting perceptions, into getting views from this tiny little box on our phone, um, and making sure that, you know, our views are or our interests are amplified or exemplified through this little thing that we're carrying. So the responsibility of what words go onto the tweets, on the Instagram posts, on the Facebook posts, into Pause for Thoughts, whatever it is, everything becomes a public box, a public platform in which you try and get your stance across. Um, and often when it comes to the, uh, my faith, um, the faith of Islam, it can be a box that we're trying to undo the things that have been created for us, the words that have been created for us, um, and which we are labelled with. Um, now, as a children's author, I'm very, very lucky. Uh, I get to go into schools and I get to speak to children uh, about the things that are concerning them, about the things that they're seeing in the world. Um, and as a refugee uh, frontliner and also as a women's rights frontliner, those two worlds can often also collide. And when I go into schools, I hear lots of questions from children about why is it that there are bombs being dropped in this part of the world? Why is it that grown-ups are reacting to some refugees in some way, but not to other refugees in the same way? Um, so all of those questions are out there in our schools and our children are growing up with it. And where do they go to for answers? Right now, it is the media, the media in all its forms. Um, and in schools and in colleges and universities where, you know, so many things are up for debate, even just basic words are up for debate, um, it can feel too overwhelming. So this comfortable little box that we carry around in our pockets can be the thing that we look to for the answers we have. Uh, talking about answers, um, there's a reason why I have Snowy the dog um, here on the podium. I carry him absolutely everywhere to the great um, intrigue of uh, border control officers. Um, 
There is a reason. Um, so in my very first book, The Boy at the Back of the Class, uh, which centres around a refugee boy that walks into a UK classroom and meets the most magnificent heart, the narrator of that book is a wannabe Tintin, is a wannabe reporter, is a wannabe journalist. And that is why they do not shy away from their questions. So in each of my books, I have a narrator that is not afraid of their questions. And the reason why I linked it into Tintin and why I carry Snowy with me is that as a child without much access to characters and books, you know, that I could imagine myself in, Tintin was the first thing I opened and I saw characters from Egypt, from Saudi Arabia, from China, from other parts of the world where, you know, my uncle Jamil could be in the background. So I got very excited by Tintin. I remember having huge conversations with my mum about Tintin's superpower because Tintin's not really a superhero. He doesn't have muscles. He can't, you know, he's not a turtle living underground. He doesn't have a unicorn or a sword. Um, his superpower is questions. It's the questions and the courage that comes with asking those questions and the quest to find the truth. And that is what I always linked journalism with, the quest to find the truth behind a mystery, behind an answer, you know, sorry, a question that everyone is seeking an answer to. And of course, that takes Tintin on these madcap adventures and um, often meeting very, very stupid people. But Tintin's legacy in my world and in the legacy of the children I see um, growing up in our schools, the, the right to question, the desire to question, the need to break out of boxes that they're seeing being created for other people or themselves, it all centers around the courage to have a voice. It all centers around the courage to ask your question and move forward um, and try and find the answers. And all of my life has been centered around asking questions, whether it was about why was it that in history lessons in school, I never saw anything about India or Africa or Indonesia or Singapore and now I get to answer those questions for myself because I'm not, I've not stopped asking them. Um, kids also have the same questions or whether it was around women and why it was that we studied Van Gogh in art or Albert Einstein in science or um, Shakespeare in literature but we never studied Afra Ben who was also a pirate playwright of her time. All of these things, all of these questions and those questions led me on to my journey and they led me here. Um, it also led me to pause for thought because um, as a person, as a woman of um, visible faith and of the Islamic faith, um, of course I have questions about how I am viewed. Why is it that border officers at airports will take extra time to go through things in my suitcase and my headscarf um, but nobody else's? Why is that I still have to carry around labels that have nothing to do with me? So all of those attempts to break free of um, words that have been created for me is of course linked to the media. People's perceptions are based around what they see as truth speakers, journalists. Um, so it's really, really integral and important that of course we know the responsibility of what we're doing because sadly we don't live in a world yet where I'm seen as an individual, just me, nobody else. Um, I'm still carrying the weight of lots and lots of words and lots and lots of people that I have nothing to do with. Um, so it's something that I am very passionate about um, and whether it's working for refugee rights, whether it's working for myself just as a Muslim woman, whether it's working for women's rights, um, I want to have the luxury and the platform to try and break those things up for other people as well as myself. And pause for thought. Now, um, pause for thought was something that seems like a kind of little diamond in my world. Um, there is something really wonderful about having just this moment on radio where no one can see you, no one can judge you straight away, there isn't this visible thing um, you know, to present yourself with, they can't you know, put their own words and their own ideas onto you, there's no projection going on, it's just a radio voice coming out to you, nobody knows who you are really, but you get to have these two and a half minutes, in my case usually three because I'm always a waffler, um, 
all of those, that kind of, that really secret kind of, hey, hi, this is me, and this is what I've been through this week, or this is the topic, and this is how it relates to me, this everyday topic that we can all relate to. And whether it's pause for thought, or whether it's a news story, or whether it's Good Morning Britain, or whether it's um, a massive uh, breaking news thing on Twitter or Instagram, everything is centered around stories. Our lives are stories. The people around us are stories. We're all walking stories. Um, and what is so important is that we're given the agency to tell our stories through our own individual voice without being paired up with or being boxed in with things that we do not necessarily agree with or that we have no um, call to represent at all. Um, and stories are the basis of my life. Um, I write stories, whether it's the children's books or whether it's going into refugees and hearing people's stories and what they've been through, whether it's going to the refugee camps and hearing what they've been through. Um, all of these things are stories and I think Whatever platform of media that you're working in as a journalist, as a researcher, as a producer, the most beautiful thing you can do is to create a new angle, is to make sure that the angle being created isn't the only angle being shown or spoken about or um, told to the public who will go out. There are very, you know, there's millions of people out there who won't ever, you know, deep dive into a story. They'll take something as fact and they'll use that fact for maybe the course of their lives. Um, and I think the politics that we have right now that shapes these huge narratives on behalf of people who aren't speaking or don't give, you know, aren't given a platform um, is a dangerous place to be. We know how dangerous that is. And the role of the media to break that and to crash those boxes created and the, break those bubbles is just so integral, so important. Um, and going back to what my uncle said about bad PR and good PR, he brought it down to the individual. He didn't mean it as a, oh, you go out deliberately to create a PR machine for God. Of course not. What he meant was, as a human being, you are God's PR. You either set a beautiful example for the rest of the world or you set something that is negative. And the negative thing is something that we do not want. But even if you are that person who's trying to live and you know be that good person, that good narrative, when you're surrounded by people who do not see any of that, that reduce you to something really, really you know, small and tiny, um, then it can be a hard job to make sure that people know exactly who you are um, as a person, what you're trying to do. Um, and media has such a huge role to play in that. Um, so on behalf of myself and Tintin and Snowy, um, thank you for listening to me, for giving me this platform this morning. Um, and I hope that some of what I say will resonate with the roles that you go on and the stories that you go on to create for us. Thank you. And now you can sit and just take a breath okay. because I think you came straight from your car. Yes into here and onto the stage. <laughs> but it's lovely to have you with us. And just want to pick up on a few things uh, that Anjali spoke about there. Um, and not least her books, because they cover the kind of subjects that I think quite often people don't think children should talk about, should hear about, want to talk about whether they're... Are they things that, that maybe as adults we sort of keep away from them? As parents, we maybe turn the radio off. Let's just talk about some of the subject matters. So the first one was the boy at the back of the class, which yes. you mentioned. Um, and that came off the back of all the work that you've done and are continue to do with refugees. Mm -hmm. So tell us a bit about how that came about, and then we'll talk a bit about children's reaction to it. Um, so The Boy at the Back of the Class wasn't a book that I'd planned to write. I was actually writing a trilogy about chocolate and doing research on chocolate. Um, but I began works in 2015 in the refugee camps of northern France um, because of Island Kurdi's story. Um, and I, I kind of am internally grateful to the journalists who broke that story and the papers that didn't shy away from 
publishing that and image. And this was the little boy. Yeah, the little boy, Syrian boy, who was trying to flee and drowned on the Turkish coast. Um, so that image of that soldier carrying away that little baby's body. Um, and I talk about it to all the children I go into because uh, to go to speak to because the book was really a result of that. And that, that set off a series of ripple effects in my life. Um, it wasn't until that moment, I call it my Tintin moment, it woke me up and made me start to have questions about why it was that our governments were breaking international human rights laws, about why it is that until then, and still to this day, when you see an image of refugees, it's usually supposedly young, supposedly able-bodied young men who seem to be coming to take everything, uh, even though they're coming from the most beautiful, staggering places of the earth. Um, but if you flip that same boat, you will not see the women that are on that boat. You won't see the children that are on that boat or the elderly people on that boat. Um, so it really woke me up. And I started going to the camps in 2015. In 2016, I met a little baby called Baby Rehan, um, who is uh, the, the baby I commend this book to. Um, and he's very special to me. I met lots and lots of babies in the camps, of course. Um, but he was very special to me because I met him before he was born. His mother, Zainab, was heavily pregnant. She'd fled the bombings of Afghanistan, which, as we all know, is a continued horror place for women. Um, she had lost all her family, the bombings. Wherever she went, she was told, keep moving. There's more bombs coming or keep moving. There's, you know, there's too many people here. So she ended up in the most horrendous place in Dunkirk. Um, and when you see an eight-month-old woman trying to look for food to survive and have her baby survive, of course you want to help. Um, so we kind of rushed back home, raised money, rushed back out to give her whatever we had so she could have her baby safe in hospital. And we found that baby Rehan had been born three days early. But the most magical thing had happened. Um, all the refugees sleeping in the mud pits on the railway tracks under the trees, they had rushed out to help her. And they had taken out their wallets and purses and taken out every dollar and cent and euro, whatever they had to make sure she could have her baby safely on uh, in an ambulance. Um, at this point, still no boy at the back of the class, but fast forward half a year later, um, I have a picture of him on my desk, and it's my first and last moment with him. Um, as many of you might know, every three or four days in the camps in northern France, the French police come and they destroy everything. So every sleeping bag, tent, sock, shoe, um, everything is gone, and it's to make this... Sorry, did you say every three days? Every three or four days, so at least once a week. Um, so they come in with tractors and tear gas, they clear the area, they trash everything. And what it does, it creates a cycle of frontliners having no other job but to make sure there's more tents, more sleeping bags, more shoes, more socks. Um, and also the refugees are so petrified of police, they of course run because they know they're about to lose everything again. And it's to make sure that they know they're not welcome as if they don't know that already. Um, so we said goodbye to baby Rehan. I was like, I'll come back next week. You know, we'll bring back more things, whatever you need, nappies, whatever. Um, just as we were leaving, the police were entering. We suddenly realized it's a clearance day and that we might never see them again. And that happened to be the case. Um, so half a year later, I was in hospital um, and I was actually told I might not make it. And the doctors actually said the words, you know, think about who you would like to contact. Um, and the first person, um, first figment of life that kind of popped into my head was, I wish I could see baby Rehan and his mother and just make sure they're okay. Um, but I did recover. I was okay. I fought back. And yeah, this, uh, the title, The Boy at the Back of the Class, jumped into my head on day three in hospital. And suddenly this story about a little boy who is basically my Rehan, his name is Ahmed in the book, who enters a UK classroom and meets the most magnificent person you could hope to meet. Someone who just wants to be your friend, doesn't care that you can't speak the language, doesn't care what you look like, doesn't care that you have a broken bag. They just want to be your friend. So really, it's the children of the camps and especially Rehan who triggered that story. So I left my chocolate books. Um, I'm sure you'll get back to that. The research is continuing, yeah. so it's fine. Um, and yeah, so and the, the reactions have just been mind blowing. I can't really. Well, tell us it. a bit about the reactions. I mean, one thing I love is seeing on social media, and you must as well, seeing kids on World Book Day yeah. dressed as Ahmed, which yes. is just brilliant. So we've got 
one on, sorry, I'm just going to go through okay. the subject matter. We've got one on refugees. There's one here on domestic violence. Mm -hmm. uh, there's one on homelessness. And uh, one about, you actually mentioned it, didn't you, the, about, about representation, really, about why we don't see mm -hmm. people from um, all over the world who particularly fought in the wars uh, represented in our history. Some of those are subjects that we don't always talk to our kids about. Mm -hmm. And like I say, turn off the radio. So what reaction do you get when you go into schools and when teachers have read these books with their classes? Um, it's been... Uh, really staggering, and I think um, I also blame myself for underestimating children, because I, I think we all do, don't we? Yeah, we do uh, constantly, and you kind of forget what you were like as a seven or eight or nine year old who'd read a good book and wanted to do something about it. Um, so, with a boy at the back of the class, um, I kind of wrote it, not really expecting it to get published because I was still trying to sell the chocolate stories, <laughs> um, but somehow it did. And I thought, okay, so it's been published now. That's amazing. If if I'm very lucky, there might be a few children who might meet a refugee child and who might have a few questions, who might pick up the book. What I didn't expect was to suddenly get letters in from Holocaust survivors saying that for the first time after reading the book, their children were coming to ask them questions about their refugee experience. Or Somali people who have been, you know, um, fleeing wars um, you know, for 20, 25 years, whose children were also coming back and asking questions. So that was actually my first set of emails. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. So the kids are reading the book and going back and asking questions. This is brilliant. And then the teachers took it on board and the librarians took it on board. And wow, they went to town. And I think um, the reason why this book, I, I don't really, I don't know, there's probably many reasons, but I think the reason why this resonates is because the child in the book, the narrator in the book, is asking questions that children are asking. Mm. And there's not many safe spaces where they can ask those questions. Some children won't be able to go home and have discussions with their parents. It's going to be the classroom. The also, classroom is going they're to be really difficult questions to they answer. Are. They are. Poor teachers. But um, they, they have done the most amazing thing. So the reactions have um, gone from children, you know, setting up uh, sleepover clubs to raise money for their local refugee charity to, um, to just last week I was in a school in um, I think it was Norwich and they have written to Suella Braverman um, to demand that you know the, the, the legal um, ramifications of Rwanda be um, uh, reversed and these are all seven or eight year olds no one's asking them to do this but they want to do it um, and just to give you one example of the sweetest story um, a couple of years ago I received um, a DM from a mother who said my daughter is seven she's read your book at home we've had discussions about it she's very angry at the queen who's a bit useless in the book <laughs> Um, so she wrote a letter to Buckingham Palace um, demanding that she did research that there's 223 rooms in the da 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 and you need to open up these rooms you can use these ones for functions but these ones you can open up um, so she gave a, a complete and she also gave a business proposal as to how it was beneficial she's going to go a long way she's going to go child. she's probably an MP right now she's 13 um, so it's uh, you know and then she got a response a standard response as in you know the, the royal family cannot be involved da 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 which infuriated her even more <laughs> so um, she's continuing to write, <laughs> write letters to Buckingham Palace telling them to you know so it's kind of these reactions have been beyond thinking. Um, and I think it's because there's a hunger for children to know, A, what's happening. They see, I mean, they're inundated with media, inundated mm. in a way that we never were. Mm. Um, and they can see things happening, which we might not give them credit for. And a lot of them don't ask their questions. They don't, they wait to find the answers somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so having something that triggers those questions and leads them on a journey, um, I think that's what has, what's happened with the books. And the second book, which was about a woman and her child escaping domestic violence. I mean, that's something that you have got some experience of in your own family. So that must have been part of what brought that book into being. 
Yes, yeah, so um, sadly in 2011, um, so uh, I had a beautiful aunt who we first heard of through a women's refuge. I mean, I'm Bengali, so we have about 50 billion ref um, you know, relations around the world, so most of them we don't know. But she'd rung from a women's refuge. She managed to get my mother's number from somewhere. My mother was a frontliner um, working for homeless charities. So she said, you know, I need help. I'm trying to escape my husband. We're a distant cousin. I know we've never met, but is there anything you can do to help? So we spent five years trying to help her escape um, her very rich, very charismatic um, uh, perpetrator of violence. Um, and sadly, despite all of those works, despite the things our family went through to try and support her, make sure there was the police reports, go to children's services, go to the courts, it didn't work. He was allowed access to the house and he murdered her in 2011 after that five and a half year battle of trying to convince everyone that he was what he said, you know, what she was saying he was. Um, and after her death um, with the Home Office report, um, we found out that every single sector of our agency had information that she could have taken with her to prove you know, what he was, but they never shared it and they never gave it to her. So it was literally her word against his and I was infuriated. Mm, about the lack of joining up. About the lack of joining up. Yeah. What is this, gold dust? This is a person's, you know, this is a person's life you could have saved with this information. Mm. So um, I was really furious and I set up making her history in her name um, and I work in, you know, I deliver things to refugees. A lot of um, refugees are underfunded, they're being cut. Um, there's nothing there. People, you know, women and children will arrive with literally just a toothbrush, bag of clothes and nothing else. The refugees can't give them anything apart from a bed and the children that enter them are, of course, traumatized a lot of them won't know what's happened or are so traumatized they can't speak about it um and the stats are at least one in seven children are going through this at home they go they don't want to go home after school they're afraid to get home um and the silence around domestic violence is what perpetrates it as well it helps the perpetrator to make sure that those walls don't come down and i hate the word domestic because i think mm. it just it closes doors, it's a private thing. It's not a private thing, it's a community thing. And there are women dying every single week and we still don't do enough around it. So the media around that is something that I'm also passionate about. I want to mm. do more with making history. But um, yeah, it's, uh, she triggered um, that story. So all the funds from the book go back to making history and the works we do. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. Um, you talked a bit about the way you are seen as, I love this term, woman of visible faith. That's, <laughs> that's brilliant. Well, that describes it perfectly. Can escape it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm always very interested at how you represent Islam through your social media presence. I feel like I've learned a lot, and Aww. particularly um, in, in Ramadan, when you put these beautiful pictures, paintings um, of Islamic life from hundreds of years ago uh, on your on your Instagram feed um, but I wonder what kind of reaction you get to not just being a woman of visible faith when people see you but a woman of visible faith on your social media feeds of you know of all varieties um, it's interesting it depends on who it is and what their agenda is um, if someone's coming to enjoy, uh, you get lots of love, you know, love hearts and lovely faces and it's wonderful. And a lot of people do say, oh, I've learned so much today and I didn't know about this. Um, and that's great because I'm also learning as I go. Um, but then some people will obviously take offence to the fact that, um, I mean, there's a lot of surprisingly, um, not unsurprisingly, I should say, um, there's a lot of people who come and kind of throw my faith in my face as in, oh, you're a Muslim woman. How can you be defending women's rights? And I'm like, well, you don't know anything about the you know, the, the um, women's rights that were embedded in the Quran and what we see, you know, put down the daily male version of my faith um, and listen to what we're, set, what we're saying. Um, and just the, sometimes the, the debate can get skewered by the fact that I wear a scarf. I think if I didn't wear a scarf, things would probably be a little easier for me. Um, but I chose to do it um, uh, when I was, 
17 and I went on pilgrimage and I wanted to do it, uh, even though my mum and dad were like, don't do it. Um, so it's kind of, uh, it's an um, honour for me to have that kind of platform. I mean, I don't have many, I mean, it's, you know, uh, it's not millions of followers or anything, but the people that I do see following are active followers. So they will take the information I'm putting on and use it in some way. So just to give you an example, um, I love Tagore. I love, I can't believe that even this noble, you know, winning poet of the Bengali world um, is not studied in school, but we'll study Japanese poetry, we'll study Russian poetry, we'll study everywhere else but India and Bangladesh, some, something's wrong there. Um, so I, I used a Tagore quote in Line Above the Door, um, and a teacher saw it, went back, um, investigated Tagore, she's an A-level teacher, she came back and said, I can't believe there's an English teacher, I've not even heard of him, so thank you, I'm now changing the curriculum in my school to include him as part of our studies. Um, so they're active and that's wonderful. So the majority, I would say 99.9% .9 is really excited, really wonderful. They want to share, they want to learn. Um, and it's just that kind of 0.1% um, who surprisingly we listen to, of course. So like, oh my God, they hate me. Um, so yeah, it's kind of that love-hate balance, but yeah. Sure. Now, has anyone got anything they'd like to ask Anjali? Derek McCauley, uh, I'm the chair of the Hibbert Trust. Um, you mentioned Tintin. And I was, I was quite surprised. And Tintin's been criticised in some quarters, particularly one of his books banned, I think, the United States. Tintin goes to the Congo, or whatever the title was. Yeah. Um, and it raises the whole issue of cancel culture. What is, well, clearly, you saw, saw something in Tintin that other people don't see. Mm -hmm. I'd be interested in your perspective on that, cancelling books, particularly for children. Yeah, so I've just come back from America where, of course, the Florida State um, is kind of going through a whole thing about um, I mean, parents who are taking their children out because books have been cancelled um, to such a huge degree. Um, my personal perception is that uh, we cannot erade the times that we have come from. We have to learn from it. And I think by cancelling or deleting what we perceive as negative, we can't have discussions around it. Why is this bad? Why do you think this isn't fair? Um, if you erode those things, I know there's been around Roald Dahl, there's been all of these things are happening. Um, and I saw something in Tintin which other people didn't see because I'm of a world that they're not of. So they didn't need to worry about the fact that they're not in books at all, that there's no authors speaking about, you know, Uncle Jamil in the background. And I think if you negate that, if that book is banished because, oh, it has a man in the thobe in the background and that might not be representative of so-and-so, then we lose the platform of discussion. Um, and I, I don't believe in banning anything that's going to erode or delete, um, you know, uh, grounds for debate. We need to have it as humans and we also need to learn from the past. If we can't, if we erode all of that, then what is the past? Um, we don't want to reach a point where we have no idea why the civil war was fought or, you know, why slavery existed, etc. We need to acknowledge it, um, talk about it, and then we can move on. That's really interesting, actually. I don't know if anyone saw over the weekend, there was something by Catelyn Moran in one of the Timeses over the weekend, which was saying exactly that. Mm -hmm. And I think Hadley Freeman wrote something yeah, about it as well, yeah. which basically was saying, I can actually hold two things in my mind at once. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Catelyn was making the point that actually, if, if we don't have what went before... Mm -hmm unsavoury though some of it may well have been mm -hmm. we can't see how far we've come yeah. either and actually it's quite important I mean you may think we haven't people may think we haven't come as far as we should have done mm -hmm. but but actually you if you can't see that transition yeah. and that progress yeah. then that's an erosion of history it's yeah. an erosion of history which I will never back so mm. it's, it's you, you have to have discussions about it and yes it's unsavoury but why is it unsavoury yes why, why let's talk about that at all yeah so, yeah um anyone else ah oh, up there 
Hi, Nick Jones from seenandunseen.com. You mentioned that kids are inundated with media and they're, they're turning to the media for the answer. I'm just wondering the time you spent with them, what are the sort of media brands or is it traditional media? Is it influencers, dreadful phrase, but you know what I mean? Do you um, that? that are picking yeah. Up? Um, it's, from what I can tell, it's the, the tr traditional forms of media, your newspapers, um, radio, that's not where the children are going to. They're going to YouTube, they're going to Instagram, they're going to TikTok, which is really worrying. Um, so it's, it's, those are the things they're seeing as truth because that's what's popular. That's what, you know, they're getting their news sources from. And even when they do see, you know, when, um, for example, if a news story breaks and then it also hits TikTok, like in the earthquakes happened, we need to raise money, whatever, then there's a kind of link, oh, this has come from a newspaper story, but actually they're not going to that. It's YouTube and Instagram and TikTok. Um, so yeah, that's what I see. I'm going to ask you one more question. Okay. Because we've talked about, you've talked about the work you've done with refugees and taking things to the refugee aid. Um, frontliners. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to throw this one in. Uh, everyone here will have their view on uh, where we are politically with that. Yes. What's yours? <laughs> just in a couple of sentences. Um, right. What's mine? I think any um, political being or party which A, does not deal with or serve or uh, adhere by international laws that will serve a human being in need has got to be challenged. Um, I don't think that uh, the things that are happening right now, not just here, but across the world, I would say, with the rise of far right, um, the old racisms and the fears and the projections of, um, I would say, dissatisfaction with the economy, whatever it is, whatever we're projecting onto other people and how that might be helped by the words we're using and the images we're given, um, all of that has got to be fought. Um, I don't think that stripping someone of their reasons for travelling, um, their reasons for fleeing a war zone, their reasons for seeking help for wherever it is, um, should be so negated that we are okay with saying, actually, I don't want to hear your story, I don't believe your story, we're going to ship you out to wherever we want to put you, no matter the fact that we could have spent that money on actually helping you and stopping the wars and the climate change disasters, etc. So my, my stance is anything that serves to harm another human being has to be challenged. And um, I, I definitely can't go to God and answer um, for them, but I can answer for myself and I, I won't let that happen in my corner of the world. Anjali, thank you so much. You. Anjali Ralph. Thank you very much. The Religion Media Centre is an impartial and independent organisation providing an expert resource for the media and other interested parties to help the reporting and understanding of religion and beliefs. You can find news, fact sheets, briefings and lots more on the website at religionmediacentre.org.uk where you can also sign up for a daily roundup of stories about religion and belief from the UK and around the world straight to your inbox. If you'd like to support the podcast and the work we do, contributions are very welcome. Thank you if you do, have or will. It all helps us continue to tell the stories that matter and it's hugely appreciated.